Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coal is a cheap and plentiful source of energy, but it's taking its toll on the environment. Some scientists say if the U.S. doesn't push for new clean coal technology, we'll be like trains on the track headed for collision. Train number one is the rush to coal power in the U.S. Train number two is the urgency of dealing with climate change. The switch is carbon dioxide capture and sequestration. Also, Nobel Peace Prize winner Wangari Mathai speaks about growing up in the countryside of Kenya and the damage done by Britain's rule of Africa. We need to decolonize the minds of people who have been colonized. Until you decolonize those minds, it's very, very difficult for the colonized to liberate themselves from the burden of self-doubt. Wangari Mathai unbowed this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Some call it a coal rush. Despite growing concerns about clean air and climate change, electric utility companies are pushing for a new fleet of coal-fired power plants in the U.S., Coal is a plentiful domestic source of energy, but all those new power plants could bring a spike in carbon dioxide pollution, a chief culprit in global warming. So scientists are looking for new ways to use this old fuel. One promising approach is called carbon capture and sequestration. It would take the CO2 out of power plant emissions and store it deep in the earth. Living on Earth's Jeff Young looks at how coal might be made more climate-friendly. The story is part of our occasional series, Generating Controversy, The Changing Climate of Coal. Walking into the Dominion Power Station at Mount Storm, West Virginia, feels like entering the belly of the beast. Massive, grimy machines feed 15,000 tons of coal a day to giant boilers. Plant manager Bill Wood shouts above the roar of pure, raw power. On your left over here is the coal pulverizer. We used to pulverize coal prior to blowing it into the furnace for combustion. Pulverized coal burners like this one dominate the power industry today. This old workhorse powers almost a million homes and has done so for 40 years. In the control room, we take out the earplugs and Wood points to a throbbing yellow glow on a monitor screen. When you were talking about the boiler, we actually got furnace cameras here to show the fireball inside of the boiler. Wow, look at that. Man, it's like looking at the sun or something. Well, it's pretty intense. Uh, That fireball at its hottest point is probably in the neighborhood of 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. You're kind of looking straight into the heart of what your whole industry is all about right there. That's, that's correct. We generate steam. They also generate a lot of carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas. A power plant this size can pump out more than 6 million tons of CO2 a year. There are ways to teach old dogs like Mount Storm the new trick of fetching CO2. One method binds up carbon in the exhaust with ammonia. Another sends pure oxygen into the boiler. Both would likely be very costly raising the price of electricity as much as 50 percent. 
Climate scientists say building a whole new fleet of these old-style power plants without any carbon capture technology could be a climate disaster. Princeton University professor Robert Sokolow compares it to trains on a collision course. Train number one is the rush to coal power in the U.S. Train number two is the urgency of dealing with climate change. The switch is carbon dioxide capture and sequestration, or CCS. Sokolow told a congressional committee that carbon capture and sequestration technology is urgently needed and ready for full-scale deployment. After the hearing, Sokolow told me that one form of carbon capture stands out from the rest. The surest way to move forward is to build IGCC plants. That seems, by general agreement, to be what we can do today and that will be, and will be the cheapest route. IGCC is a cleaner kind of coal power that could provide an easier way to remove carbon dioxide. To understand how, we first need to know what IGCC is, Integrated Gasification Combined Cycle. That's quite a mouthful, but the part to focus on is the G, the gasification. That is the key difference. We don't burn coal here in terms of combusting it, which is the normal way of doing it. We gasify coal. That's Mark Hornick. He's plant manager for Tampa Electric's Polk Power Station in Central Florida, one of only two IGCC plants now operating in the country. We actually turn that solid fuel into a gaseous fuel before we use it in our combustion turbine, and that's what gasification is all about. The IGCC plant is a totally different animal from the old pulverized coal burner at Mount Storm. There's no plume from a smokestack, no boiler with a glowing fireball. Gasification begins when a coal slurry is injected with oxygen into a high-pressure environment to create a gas. A turbine burns it to make power. But before that, pollutants like sulfur and particulates are stripped from the pressurized gas. And that's much easier than dealing with the exhaust from a boiler. Hornick says that same method could be used to strip out CO2 as well. Well, it wouldn't be a small deal, but it's certainly something that's doable and proven in IGCC. If you're going to do CO2 removal from any power plant, it is going to increase the cost. For IGCC, they estimate about a 25% increase, which is not insignificant. However, if you look at conventional coal, it would be over 50%, and the technology is a lot less proven. Harnick says if the law required CO2 capture, he thinks he could outfit his IGCC plant to do it in three or four years. That's remarkably fast in the world of power plants. And once captured, the CO2 has to go somewhere. In some places, it's used to force oil and gas from old wells. It can also be pumped deep into formations in the earth, where high pressure makes it a liquid. Small-scale tests show the liquid CO2 stays underground. A new study by MIT called The Future of Coal found most parts of the country could store large amounts of CO2. MIT chemistry professor John Deutsch praises IGCC as a clean option for coal power, but does not declare it the technological winner. Deutsch served in the U.S. Department of Energy and directed the CIA. He advocates much more research and development for all kinds of carbon capture and sequestration. He says current government spending doesn't come close. We think that's a urgent urgent program for the Department of Energy to undertake in this country and for other countries to undertake around the world. The Department of Energy's main coal project now is a billion-dollar partnership with coal and power companies called FutureGen. 
It would be the first IGCC plant with zero emissions. But a site has not even been selected for FutureGen's construction, and commercial use of its technology could take decades. Critics like Massachusetts Democratic Representative Ed Markey say that's far too slow. You know, St. Augustine used to say, oh, Lord, make me chase, but not just yet. These utility executives are saying, oh, Lord, make me carbon free, but not just yet. Markey leads a new special congressional committee on global warming, and he's pushing for a law to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Without that, he says, it's doubtful companies would pay to take the carbon out of coal. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Time is one of the nicest rituals in caring for an infant, but it turns out now it could have a toxic dark side. A recent study has found that some of the most popular baby shampoos contain an industrial solvent that is suspected of causing cancer in humans, along with damaging the liver, kidneys, and nervous system. It's called 1,4-Dioxane, and it's used to make shampoos and body washes soft and bubbly. Now, in the wake of the study, some brands of shampoos containing the chemical are being pulled from the market. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern has our report. Nice warm water. It's bath time in the Love Diggory household in Boston, Massachusetts. (laughs) And two-year-old Layla is getting her hair rinsed. Layla, can you put this over your eyes? Okay, I need you to sit down, big girl, okay? Let me rinse out your hair. Victoria Love is trying to get Layla to put a washcloth over her big brown eyes to keep out the shampoo. And while she can protect Layla's eyes from the suds, she can't protect her daughter from potentially dangerous substances that might be in her shampoo and other baby care products. One substance in particular Love worries about is 1,4-Dioxane, and with good reason. A recent study has found trace amounts of dioxane in a number of widely used baby care products, including Johnson & Johnson's Kid Shampoo Watermelon Explosion and Hello Kitty Bubble Bath. I was frankly shocked to learn that widely used baby shampoos and soaps could contain a carcinogen. That's Dr. Dever Davis. She's the head of the Environmental Oncology Center at the University of Pittsburgh and a professor of epidemiology at their Graduate School of Public Health. Dioxane forms in these products as a result of a chemical reaction between other ingredients. One of them is sodium lauryl sulfate, an ingredient you've probably seen on the label of your shampoo or body wash. It's a normal detergent used in many soaps. Problem is, Dr. Davis says, it's a little harsh on tender skin. She gives a little chemistry lesson. What happens is that ethylene oxide is added to the sodium lauryl sulfate to create sodium laureth sulfate. And in the process, you get diethylene oxide, which is another name for 1,4-dioxane. It can be completely removed by what's called vacuum stripping. This is something that is completely avoidable. And Dr. Davis says elsewhere, it's completely avoided. 1,4-Dioxane has been banned from cosmetics in Europe, and the World Health Organization and the U.S. National Toxicology Program consider it to be a probable human carcinogen because it causes cancer in male and female, 
mice and rats. In this country, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration says dioxane in cosmetics is an incidental ingredient, so they don't require companies to remove it or to list it on the label. In order for the FDA to ban dioxane from cosmetics, there would have to be demonstrated human harm. Manufacturers complete internal testing for safety before putting products on the market, but the FDA doesn't do pre-market testing. The FDA press office declined requests for an interview with Living on Earth. However, an industry spokesman said he believes there's no cause for alarm. Dr. John Bailey is the executive vice president of science at the Cosmetic, Toiletry, and Fragrance Association. Virtually everything we're surrounded by carries a hazard of, of some sorts. You know, I think that at the end of the day, the levels of dioxane in these products do not present a risk uh, by any scientific measure. But when it comes to bath time, Victoria Love would like to judge the safety of the products herself. At the very least, she says she'd like ingredients such as 1,4-dioxane to be listed on the bottle. But I really can't believe that as a parent I'm in a position to, you know, suddenly become a chemist in my free time to investigate, you know, every little product and, you know, how it might have some adverse health effect. And um, I'm hoping that the more people understand and realize, you know, what they're actually being sold, uh, people will start demanding change. Some change is already in the works. Hello Kitty Bubble Bath had the highest dioxane levels of the children's bath products the study tested. And when contacted for this report, the distributor said they would initiate a recall process. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. Coming up, we introduce the Wiggles. Composting worms, that is. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. You're listening to an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Environmental and human rights activist Wangari Mathai has written a memoir recounting her rise from life as a village girl in the countryside of Kenya to a celebrated green leader and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. The book is called Unbowed. Last week, we spoke with her about her education and her early activism. We continue the conversation this week, beginning with a tale she tells in her book about a fig tree near her childhood home. Well, the story of the fig tree is a very interesting story because when I was growing up, I was like all the other girl children of my age. I would collect if I would, I would fetch water from the nearby stream. And I remember that my mother told me not to collect firewood from the fig tree. And I asked her why, and she said, because that tree is a tree of God. We don't burn it, we don't cut it, we don't use it for building. We let them stand for as long as they are able to. And I didn't think about it until much, much later when I became uh, more conscious about the role of trees in the environment. And then I appreciated the wisdom of our people in not cutting some of these trees, treating them as if they were sacred. And it was much later that I realized that these trees were very important for the stabilization of the land, stabilizing the soil, making sure that you don't have landslides, and also making sure that a lot of the water that is in the ground is brought up from the underground, from the belly of the earth, along the roots of these trees. So they were very, very important in the ecological system. And when you went back uh, as an adult in your later years, 
what had happened to that tree? Unfortunately, when we introduced cash crops, coffee, tea, sugar canes, it w- the tree was considered useless. It was no longer a holy tree because people were now Christians. And so it was cut to make way for tea bushes. Fortunately, nothing has ever grown in the particular site where that tree was. It is as if only a fig tree was supposed to be there. And what happened to the water? The, you said that the, the roots of the tree would bring up water. What happened to the water that was there? Very close to the fig tree, there was this little stream. And I mentioned in the book that I used to play uh, with frog eggs and with tadpoles in this stream. And this is the stream from which I would fetch water for my mother. But when this tree was cut, that stream also dried up. We, we often take these trees, we often take the ecosystem for granted, partly because we don't understand how they are linked with each other and how together they create a harmony that makes life possible. I'd like to talk to you directly about your memoir for a moment, which came out uh, not so long ago, and it is fittingly called? Unbound. And can you tell me about the title? We were trying to reflect the fact that even though we have gone through such a difficult life and we have gone through so many trials and tribulations, we continue to walk tall and proud, unbound. I think one of the most amazing things about the story you wrote about yourself and the Greenbelt Movement is that you didn't stop with teaching people about basic tree science or ecology or you just went you went so deep you addressed some of the matters of the heart and soul that can keep a people down and and in your book you describe how when missionaries came to Kenya they changed not only people's religion but but the manner of dress names the the music the days on the calendar even the very meaning of your tribe uh Kikuyu and, and, and others. I mean, Kikuyu came to mean primitive. Well, that is the tragedy of any people who are colonized. Those who colonized had come to convince people that they are backward, that they don't have anything worth saving, that they need to emulate the lifestyle and the faith of those who have colonized them. And because those who colonized were often, you know, they had advanced technology. They came by ship, by, by horses, by trains. And so the natives were completely overwhelmed by the technology and the knowledge that the, the newcomers seemed to have. And so in, the, in that process, the colonizers, as I say, had perfected a system that was extremely powerful, and especially the region, because when you tell people about a god, a god you never see, a god you can never ask questions, you can never go to God and say, God, are these people telling me the truth, or are they manipulating me so that I am vulnerable? You can't ask God those questions. Um, So it's a very, very powerful way of controlling people so that you can access and um, exploit their resources. 
At one point you write that the, uh, and I'm quoting here, the trauma of the colonized is rarely examined. Steps are rarely taken to understand and redress it. Instead, the psychological damage passes from one generation to the next until victims recognize their dilemma and work to liberate themselves from the trauma. How do you see that psychological damage from the years of colonization under the British uh, still present today? Well, it is everywhere. You see it everywhere. You see it in the in the way people are disempowered, in the way that people don't believe in themselves, in the way that people believe that uh, they are less than those who colonized them. And it it is made worse by the fact that those who became the new rulers, who are natives, even they have that indoctrination. They literally continued to govern in the same way that the masters were governing. And that is, has been part of the problem of Africa. We need to decolonize the minds of people who have been colonized. Until you decolonize those minds, it's very, very difficult for the colonized to liberate themselves from the burden of self doubt, the burden of self, um, sometimes even self-hatred that they have. And, and the tragedy is they don't know that that's what has happened to them. Because quite often what has happened to them is projected as progress. It is projected as development. Now, I know one area where you've been raising awareness uh, is the importance of the vast tropical rainforest uh, in Africa's Congo Basin, uh, which is so much less known than uh, the Amazon rainforest. How's that going? That's going very well, and I'm um, very, very happy that uh, the climate change discussion is uh, gaining momentum, and people are recognizing that one of the ways in which we can uh, help the planet is by planting trees, but also by protecting the trees that are standing. So I hope that governments that have money will help the African governments so that they can protect that forest from logging. Because it's also important to say that the logging is not being done by local people. The logging of these forests is usually done by big timber companies from developed countries. So considering that it is the developed countries that have contributed so much to the greenhouse gases that are causing the warming up of the earth, it is only appropriate that they too should participate in assisting governments, not only to stop the logging, but to help with the rehabilitation of the logged areas. I want to mention something personal to you. Um, I live in New Hampshire and it's an old, old house. It's 250 years old. And um, there's a sugar maple. There's a bunch of sugar maples that were planted probably not long after the house was built. And one of them has, has run out of time. Um, it's probably 175 years old. The wires that have been holding it together and the other efforts that have been made to keep it going, it, it's, just nothing more can be done. And, and it has to come down. In fact, I think it's going to come down tomorrow. I'm so sorry to hear that. But it also means that uh, we understand that all living things come to an end. And the only thing we can say is that 
after so many years of service, that tree is ready to be recycled. How wonderful it would be if all of us would be recycled when our time comes and we would be able to say like that tree, I have done my part. Professor Mathai, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And I want to give you the opportunity to say anything else that you'd like to say. What I would just like to remind uh, our listeners that recently in Nairobi, we launched a Billion Tree campaign. We are appealing to all the people in the world, throughout, in the, throughout the world, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you can plant a tree. There are six billion of us. If at least one out of six planted a tree, we would very easily reach our target. It is not as if we shall solve all the crises of the climate with those billion trees, but at least it's one way of doing something to contribute towards solving the problem. Let us be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Wangari Mathai, winner of the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Wangari Mathai is Kenya's Deputy Minister of the Environment, founder of the Green Belt Movement and winner of the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize, and recently completed her memoir, Unbad. You can also listen to a one-hour documentary about Professor Mathai's life and work at our website, www.loe.org, where you can also get more information about her plan to plant one billion trees. The only thing is you have to help. Some people have an unusual ability to improvise. Necessity seems to only make them more creative. Today, we bring you the story of one such woman. Maggie Pipkins is 87. Although her husband served in the Air Force, money was always tight, so Mrs. Pipkins, who prefers to be called Maggie, started a business, a worm farm. These days, she ships out these natural earth tillers, garden worms, and their castings by the ton. They go to customers in Europe, Africa, and other parts of the world. From Cape Cod, Massachusetts, producer Ian Gray has this profile. That's the sound of Maggie Pipkins turning over piles of rotting apples with a hoe. That's where the money comes from. I grew up in Louisiana, and uh, I'd had a lot of experience with farm work. The farm belonged to my parents, and they grew a lot of cotton. And my dad grew uh, everything. When I say everything, turnips, mustards, cabbage, watermelons, cantaloupes, beets, you name it, and he grew it. Uh, my husband was in the military, and we were in Japan, and he got assigned uh, to the a base in the United States, so they sent him to Otis, and that's why we wound up at Otis. 
husband's income wasn't enough to put the children through the type of school that I wanted them to be educated from. So I read this article in the uh, newspaper about people selling worms to people who would raise them and they would buy them back. But I didn't go for that because I'd had a lot of experience with that kind of work. To Maggie, raising worms for somebody else was too much like raising cotton for somebody else. So I decided to try on my own. She began her business, the Cape Cod Worm Farm, with a handful of leftovers. My husband uh, at the time was at Otis, and they do a lot of fishing, the southern guys that was out there. So he joined the gang, so he had to have earthworms. He bought some. When it was over, I took those that he had left and began to experiment. And it was a very few worms in there. But it doesn't take a lot of worms. You put maybe a half a dozen worms together in a container, and they do their thing. They, you know, they eat, they mate, and they lay eggs, they hatch. And before you know it, you have a lot of worms. I tried newspaper cardboards, coffee grinds, banana peelings, eggshells, all of those things. Not in one container, but in different containers at, as I went along. This is a storage, but this is, go right on there, let's, uh, if I can find a light here. There should be a light here. See that red thing there? Thank you, Rose. Thank you. And I had worms everywhere. I had a bathtub, a coffee pot, and all kinds of containers and buckets and and my boat was right across here. A big boat was right across there. A 10-foot dinghy full of worms. At one point, I make the mistake of referring to the soil the worms are in outside as dirt. No, there's no dirt. No dirt because they, they are eating it and they're making fertilizer out of it. The soil is three things that you mix together. Peat moss, okay, leaf mold, Kamanua manure, and they eat that over and over and over, along with other food that you put in there. I sell more than three tons of casting at a time. How long does it take to make three tons? You leave the worms in it at about three months at the most, and it depends on how many worms you have. And they're just eating, and it's going through them, and they're eating it over and over again. Life has been very good to me. And all of my kids went to college. Yeah. <laughs> and you sent your husband to college, too. <laughs> yes, he went. <laughs> and if I wasn't working, then he wouldn't have been able because he had to, would have had to spend more time trying to keep us going. Being self-employed really helped you to be free and take care of the things that you need with your family. And I don't know anybody that I would rather work for than to work for Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> I really like working for her. <laughs> 
Our profile of Maggie Pipkins was produced by Ian Gray. To learn more about Maggie and her worm business, visit a website designed by her great-granddaughter, Rotisha. You can get there by way of the Living on Earth website at LOE.org. Just ahead, a country music star returns to her coal country roots. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Oak Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coal runs thick in the blood of many, if not most, West Virginians. Kathy Matea is one of them. She grew up in West Virginia coal country before heading off to Nashville in a long and successful career as a country singer. Her recordings have been number one on the Billboard country music charts time after time. And it's hard to turn on a country radio station without hearing such hits as Love at the Five and Dime and 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. Now in her most recent work, Kathy Matea is turning her attention back to her roots, acoustic music, and coal country. Her latest recording project explores the heritage of her home state and of her own family in coal mining. Kathy Matea and her guitar join us from Nashville. Welcome to Living on Earth. How you doing? Now, you've recorded a number of songs that explore the heritage of coal mining. What was your family's relation to coal mining, your dad's relationship? Um, well, both my grandfathers were coal miners. My dad was the only son. There were six kids in his family, and he was the only boy. And uh, because my uncle gave him the money to go to school, go to college, he didn't have to go into the mines. But that was sort of everybody's, you know, everybody in his town, that was what you did. And uh, my mom grew up in a family with six sisters, and uh, my grandfather on her side was a coal miner as well. And you know, just lots of family stories, lots of family lore, uncles who were in the mines. Now, in addition to the effects of, of mining coal and living with coal itself, I understand you've also been thinking a lot about the effects of burning coal, specifically its contribution to global warming. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey this last year. In January of 2006, I, I went to see former Vice President Gore give his PowerPoint presentation over at Vanderbilt University. And uh, I didn't sleep for two nights after that. I mean, I was just haunted by a lot of what I had seen. And the evidence seemed so compelling and so overwhelming. And uh, learned to give the slideshow and have been doing it in various settings over the last few months. And uh, it's interesting. I began to sleep again once I started really taking action. That was the thing that I got to learn along the way is, you know, I feel helpless until I begin to be part of the solution. And we are each a very important part of this solution. Half of the electricity in this country does come from coal thereabouts, so maybe it's a 50-50 chance that it came from coal. But since you're in Nashville and I'm in Somerville, Massachusetts, probably one of these studios was fired by coal. Yeah. 
it's something that people don't think about. And here's the other part of it. The big seams of coal in West Virginia and a lot of Kentucky have all been mined. So what's left are real thin seams, and that means strip mining. Strip mining is rampant right now, and it's, it's, raping, it's raping the countryside. What if you knew that every time you flip on your light switch, a mountaintop in West Virginia just blows up? It's crazy. In these rural areas, a lot of times that is the best way to make money if you are unskilled labor, if you don't have a college degree. And so, you know, you don't have a lot of power if you want to stay on the piece of land where your families live for generations. It's just a lot to it. So when you decided to do something about coal, what was the first song that you decided to perform? I think the first one was Coal Tattoo, which is a Billy Ed Wheeler song. It's been around for a long time. Goodbye to Buckeye, White Sycamore. I'm leaving you behind. Dark as a Dungeon was on the list. And then I just started researching and found some old songs from the 60s and the 50s and then some modern songs and just tried to kind of find a nice mix. My goal was to be able to tell this story and to maybe open up a window into it that people who have not heard these songs before, hopefully they might find some accessibility there. What about the story of Lawrence Jones? Oh. Well, there was a strike in the in the early 70s in Harlan County, and uh, it was, I mean, it was horrible. You know, they it wound up going on for 13 months, and these people were fired on with machine guns. They were called out of their houses and killed. The whole thing kind of came to a head when one of the, they call them gun thugs, one of the people sort of hired by the company to intimidate the strikers shot a young miner in the face with a shotgun. And he went into the hospital and eventually died after a few days. He had a 16-year-old wife and a newborn baby at the time. And it was sort of the last straw. The miners had been fighting for a long time, and that was sort of the last straw that got the contract agreed to between the UMW and the company. And uh, this tribute to him, which was written by Cy Khan, is just the most beautiful, reverent, empowering song about people with not a lot of options just refusing to back down in the face of what they know to be right. Would you play it for us now? I'll be happy to. Thank you. Okay. Well, the night is thick as silence. You can't cut it with a knife. A man lies in the hospital, draining out his life. The trucks are on the back road, in the dark the headlights shine. And there's one man dead on that Harlan County line. Oh, anger like poison is eating at your soul. You thought it's loud as gunfire, your face as hard as coal. Bitterness like buckshot explodes inside your mind. 
And there's one man dead on that Harlem County line Oh, a miner's life is fragile, it can shatter just like ice But those who bear the struggle have always paid the price There's blood upon the contract like vinegar in wine And there's one man dead on that Harlan County line From the river bridge at High Splint to the Brookside Railroad track You can feel the long strength building that can never be turned back The dead go forward with us, not one is left behind Is this one man dead on that Harlan County line well, the night is cold as iron You can feel it in your bones It settles like a shroud Upon the grave of Lawrence Jones The graveyard shift is walking From the bathhouse into the mine And there's one man dead On that Harlan County line One on that Harlan County line One minor dead on that Harlan County line Thank you so much. Mm. Now, you've chosen for your coal project a number of songs that, well, they just clearly admire people who, who mine coal, who give their lives and their fortunes to coal, and endure all those hardships that come along with it, but... If the United States were to take concerted action on climate change, wouldn't that be kind of hard on the coal mining regions of the country like West Virginia? Well, I think that that's part of what we have to talk about. We have to try to get into a solution so that we can make some kind of sensible transition to cleaner power. Uh, I think there are going to be many facets to the solution. There are people doing research right now on uh, how to burn coal cleaner. So it may not be that we have to eliminate coal, but, you know, if our appetite for energy is so big right now that we will blow up mountaintops to the point where we have strip mines in West Virginia as big as half the area of Manhattan. You know, these things, it's not just the beauty of the mountains that's lost. The Appalachian Forest is the most diverse forest in North America. So we're losing habitat, we're losing species. The uh, sludge ponds are contaminating the water. And then when they blast off the mountaintops and push all of that dirt that is not coal into the valleys, it contaminates the water for the people who live in, in the area. People in West Virginia are screaming about this. And people who mine this coal are screaming about this. It is a complex problem. But if we can't discuss it because we are so married to the way things are, then we can't find our way to a solution, and we and we must. One of the best-kept secrets about West Virginia is its wild places, its rivers and backcountry, and the ecology there, which you point out is uh, perhaps one of the most diverse forests we have in North America. Yes. You have a song 
about a bird that you're lucky to see down there. <laughs> yeah, this is, um, God, this is just a wonderful song. And it, it so much speaks to the kind of risk that these miners take every day. So we'll have electricity. You know, that, how much danger these guys work in all the time. And it's just an eloquent piece written by Billy Ed Wheeler. Oh, can't you see that pretty little bird Singing with all his heart and soul He's got a blood red spot on his way And all the rest of him's black as coal Of all the colors I ever did see Red and black are the I dread For when a man spills blood on the coal They carry him down from the coal mines dead Boy, you dig deep into that tune. Oh, man, that tune is so amazing. Just an amazing piece of writing. As you've reflected on doing this coal project, on the one hand, you see coal giving people jobs, fueling the country. On the other hand, of course, it's taken quite a, a toll on people and your home state of West Virginia. So tell me, is coal a gift or a curse for West Virginia? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is, and that's, it's reflected in so many of these songs as well. There is a love-hate relationship all the way across the board, almost from any angle you slice it. And uh, as I've made this project, I have a piece of coal sitting on my desk. I just keep kind of looking at it. It's bituminous coal. It's all shiny. And, uh, 
you know, I just thought it's really good to just be able to reach out and touch it every once in a while. I know what it smells like when it burns, you know. I know how hot it burns. I know what it's like to go to the railroad track and gather it up. And I feel like this is part of my history, and I have kind of a unique position, you know, kind of one foot in the modern world and one foot in an older kind of history. And it's very scary to bring that up in the face of global warming, but we have to be able to talk about these things. We have to. Kathy Matea's album is called Coal. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Next week on Living on Earth, insomnia, back pains, nausea, headaches. Some folks treat these and other ailments with herbal remedies. One Mexican teenager from Los Angeles tries to carry on his family tradition of healing. I've been gathering plant samples and taping them into my notebook, writing all I know about each one. Most of what I know of medicinal plants comes from seeing my mom use them. Traditional healing for the next generation, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a riverine marsh in Florida. Lang Elliott and Ted Mack went to the Wakissa River's edge and recorded chattering grebes, a limpkin, and the harsh call of a red-shouldered hawk. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. From all of us here at Living on Earth, thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. 
PaxWorld, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.